Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Novel. Before we begin, a content warning. The following episode contains difficult themes and violence. In 2014, there was a show running on HBO called Boardwalk Empire. Boardwalk Empire takes place in 1920s New Jersey during Prohibition. It follows the life of corrupt politician Nucky Thompson, whose underworld connections to some of the country's most notorious gangsters help his bloody rise to the top. Steve Buscemi plays Nucky Thompson, who's based on Enoch Johnson, a real-life New Jersey politician and crime boss. The second-to-last episode is called Friendless Child and is set in the early 1930s. Will Thompson, Nucky's nephew, is working as an assistant district attorney. His boss, a Black woman, tells him to pull all the prostitution cases north of 110th Street. You need me to? Mr. Hodge does. Will resents the instructions, and the unnamed black woman becomes conciliatory. I'm sorry, okay, I don't make the assignments. Would it be any different if you did? Yes. It's not a big role, but it's based on Eunice. And from what I've learned about Eunice so far, watching that scene made me almost angry at this portrayal of her. I know you're good at your job. Mr. Hodge does too. I doubt Eunice would have tried to soothe a sensitive male ego in such a simpering way. The character is named in the credits as Beatrice Carson. That's similar enough to Eunice Carter, right? And when it aired in 2014, many people thought it was totally and utterly ridiculous, unrealistic, but not because of the simpering. They were like, oh, this is made up. You're just inserting Black people into places where they weren't. But the thing is, there was a Black woman prosecutor. And it's not even just that not everyone remembers Eunice, but that people don't even believe she could have existed. The idea that she could have existed seems like a fantasy to people. When I first learned about Eunice Carter, I was so excited to find out about her life. The more I read, the more I alternated between being sad, frustrated, and angry. Eunice was a well-known woman of her time, a published writer, a socialite, daughter of a well-known trailblazing couple, a prosecutor. She is the reason one of the most notorious mobsters of all time was sent to jail. Eunice had so many recorded accomplishments and yet still manages to be an obscure character in American history. You could have a string of firsts after your name and still be forgotten. How much does a Black woman have to do in order to stay bold-faced throughout history? 
I think it's really fascinating that she was so prominent at the time. I think I knew a little bit about the things she had done, but I actually didn't know that she had achieved notoriety for them at the time. I think when it comes to Black history in the U.S. specifically, often we remember people because their legacy can be used to serve a particular narrative. And I sort of wonder if for Eunice, she just never really fit neatly into any particular narrative, which is not to say she's not remembered at all, but she's not as much of a household name as she could be given the things she accomplished and how well-known she was in her heyday. I think also there has been a real erasure in U.S. history of Black people who were movers and shakers or who had access to power in their time. I think that it speaks to who gets remembered and who doesn't. But it's clear that Eunice, perhaps more than anything, wanted to be remembered. She had a certain type of ambition. She wanted to move in certain circles and to be recognized in the world in a certain way. She wanted people to know that she was smart, that she was accomplished. She wanted to have some proximity to power. She wanted to be a judge. That was ultimately what she felt she wanted to do. The things Eunice Carter did were seen as so out of the ordinary for a Black woman at the time that when she appeared in a character in a television show many decades later, Viewers didn't think she could have even existed. Why? I suspect she would think it's because she didn't get to achieve everything she wanted to achieve. From the teams at iHeartRadio and Novel, I'm Nicole Perkins, and this is the final episode of The Godmother. Episode 8, Finding Eunice. On November 17, 1942, Eunice writes Dewey a letter. Six years have passed since the Lucky Luciano trial. Her handwriting is sure and strong, no splotches, no words crossed out to fix any mistakes. At the time, she's still working in the prosecutor's office, but she's in a new role now, one that Dewey promoted her to just a couple of years earlier. The letter opens with, Dear Boss, handwritten on what looks like quality paper. But Dewey has left the prosecutor's office by the time of writing in 1942. Eunice is congratulating him for recently winning the election for governor. After the case, things changed Dewey became very well-known. He was the big crime buster, national reputation. And Dewey uses that popularity to launch a successful political career. He was governor of New York from 1943 until 1954. As governor, Dewey signed into law the Ives-Quinn Act, which made New York the first state to ban job discrimination based on race, religion, or creed. He increased unemployment and disability benefits, and helped create the state university system, plus many other accomplishments that helped make the Republican Party more progressive than it had been before. But there's one big twist of his career that must have chafed. His new life in politics puts him in a position where he has to undo one of the biggest triumphs of his career. During World War II, New York's government finds themselves in need of a very particular kind of deal broker. At that time, New York's waterfront had less of a touristy vibe than it does these days. It was run by the mob. The waterfront was the Fulton Fish Market, and fish was a big racket. But World War II is underway, and the U.S. Navy sees that it's imperative New York's port is protected. New York was a huge port, even bigger then in many ways than it is today. The U.S. Navy needs someone to persuade the mob controlling the port that they should work with authorities to keep New York safe. Someone the mob will trust. And who better 
than the former boss of bosses who's been languishing in prison for the last decade. Lucky Luciano himself. He uses his connections within Italy and his connections through organized crime groups across New York to make sure that the ports remain free, safe, and open during World War II. If you see anything suspicious, you have to pass the word along. Because of his cooperation, Lucky gets himself a deal. J. Edgar Hoover later sarcastically remarked that they did everything but give Luciano the Naval Cross. He's pardoned. And not just any pardon, but a pardon from the governor of New York himself, which by 1946 is, of course, Thomas E. Dewey. That had to hurt. Luciano was released from prison in 46 and goes off to Italy. Lucky remains active in organized crime, silently financing ventures in New York, Las Vegas, Cuba, for the most part from across the ocean, until he dies of a heart attack at Naples International Airport in 1962. His body is buried in a cemetery in Queens. His path and Dewey's are finally unspooled, which leaves Dewey and Eunice. I have no doubt that Dewey respected Eunice. And Eunice, I think, respected him. She actually campaigned for him. But governor of New York is no small feat. He doesn't just have pardoning power as governor. He can also appoint. Every election, Eunice is by Dewey's side. Dewey even makes a bid for the White House in 1944 and 48. Unsuccessfully, of course, although it was close. At any moment in that 11-year reign, Dewey could have helped Eunice achieve her own career ambitions. He was very comfortable singing her praises as far as the role that she'd played, but he never reached the point where he was comfortable giving her a public face It was kind of a point of controversy that he could have appointed her as a judge. He never appointed her. I don't think you can look up and go, well, he just never had the opportunity. Why didn't he appoint her? He knew she was very competent. She was very devoted to him. Dewey was progressive enough to appoint Eunice to his team and express admiration for all of her hard work, But why was it so hard for him to help her move to the bench? It's clear she was a star on the rise, but her career seemed to plateau while the men in the good old boys network surrounding her kept climbing to success. I honestly can't say I'm surprised that Dewey had no problem taking advantage of Eunice's support and expertise without letting it pay off for her. But why was Eunice so loyal to Dewey when he didn't seem interested in helping her without benefit to himself. It all seems to follow that old axiom, Black people have to work twice as hard to get half. And that's not accounting for the unique challenges of being a Black woman. Eunice may have felt that a judgeship could have created a legacy for her, would have written her more firmly than anything else could have into the pages of American history. But it didn't happen. That's not to say she didn't make an impact, Eunice's work with Dewey did leave a precedent of sorts that continues to influence the modern justice system. Eunice didn't pioneer these things, but she was part of a pivot in the American legal system. Like Dewey's Joinder Law, used so effectively to convict Lucky Luciano in association with his co-defendants, modern iterations of that law are still in use to this day, sometimes in ways that Eunice would have supported. It's actually what groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center use to bankrupt the Ku Klux Klan in certain cities. But in the criminal world, laws like the Joinder Law have often been used in ways that are heavily racialized, like targeting gang violence in L.A. and New York. Those investigations are often heavily race-based. They're looking for young Black men who have certain associations who wear certain kinds of clothing and really sweep in large numbers of people in the community 
in the effort to try to turn back gun violence in a particular area. We've even seen it used against protest movements. We've seen that in the state of Georgia, where the governor has gone after activists attempting to stop the creation of a large training facility near Atlanta called Cop City. None of these were inventions of Eunice's. And she's not responsible for the way they've evolved into their current forms. But I do wonder whether history would have remembered Eunice better if she'd worked against the system as it was then, instead of from within it. Whether or not she yearned to dismantle it, change it with her very presence in those rooms of power, history has seemed to remember the radicals and the protesters a little more clearly. I think back to her essay, Breaking Through, that roadmap of sorts. She wrote for her own career trajectory, but also of the people of Harlem, trapped in the modern ghetto. Could she have imagined that nearly a century after she wrote those words, 38% of those imprisoned in the U.S. are Black, despite being only 13% of the country's population? Removed from their communities in service to a sprawling brand of law enforcement that her own work helped lay down in history. The problem with situations like Eunice Carter is if you are the one person, if you are one of few people and you don't have meaningful access to power in that office and you don't have a meaningful voice in that office, it too easily devolves into tokenism, right? It's too easily transformed into now the institution is using you to validate itself because it's gone out and created a more diverse workforce. And you yourself find that two years, three years in, you really haven't been able to shift the institution. Eunice, perhaps sensing that the judgeship was never going to happen, quits the world of law for good in the early 1950s. If you are somebody who is trying to rock the boat, you are always subject to the status quo rocking it right back. And that applies for anyone rocking the boat, but I think it applies with special force to Black people who are trying to do that. Eunice's guiding belief has always been, help me further my career and I'll be loyal to you. But the flip side of that coin is the toll it ends up taking on Eunice's personal life. Because when those dreams don't come to fruition, she looks for someone to blame and finds him a little closer to home. She was never made a judge, but I think she always felt that it was because of Alpheus' politics. As in, Eunice's younger brother, Addie and William's only son, Alpheus Hunton. In history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss 
host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When there's anything going on in my life, good or bad, I turn to the group chats. A bad date, a single thumbs down emoji. A good date, thumbs up. A very, very good date, well, that gets full sentences. My impression of Eunice is not that she was someone who had a lot of close girlfriends or friends who she really talked to about everything that was going on with her internally. People who she hung out with and gossiped with and confided in. The picture I see of Eunice in her later years is a lonely one. I find myself yearning still to know what kind of friend Eunice was. Who does she share secrets with? Share her dreams with? But there doesn't seem to be any of that in Eunice's life. For a while, Eunice has one friend, Mary McLeod Bethune. Bethune was that person, even though they had kind of a mentor-mentee relationship, but, you know, they were also close. Mary McLeod Bethune is a civil rights activist and educator Eunice met through her mother, Addie Hunton. But they eventually have a major falling out over something that seems kind of trivial looking back. Eunice is hoping to be chosen to represent the National Council of Negro Women at a major event. But she isn't. And for some reason or another, she blames Mary for the fact that she was overlooked. That was just a sad thing. You know, when you watch two friends break up and it's just depressing. I think sometimes her personal relationships, they weren't always great. There's another anecdote about Eunice that also speaks to me about her loneliness. It's a memory of Lyle Carter Jr.'s, Eunice's only child. He lived most of his childhood away from his parents, often on long stays with extended family in Barbados. But on one occasion, when Lyle Jr. is around 11 or 12, he finds himself alone with his mother, and Eunice asks Lyle Jr. for advice. Does he think she should get a divorce from her husband, his father? There have been rumors of affairs throughout Eunice's marriage to Lyle Carter Sr., her dentist husband. But there's something tragic about the idea of Eunice asking her pre-adolescent son for advice. She could have used a girlfriend at that moment. Her marriage, from what we can tell, wasn't the happiest. I can't say for sure why that was. And I certainly am not inclined to blame it on her ambition. Just right now, yeah. my personal <laughs> principles. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> um, yeah, but I, reading the correspondence with Bethune, I can see how her attitude would make personal relationships difficult for her sometimes. She could have used even a sibling to turn to at that moment. But Eunice's path and the path her younger brother Alpheus took, they went in totally different directions. Alpheus Hunton was a scholar and an activist. He was a tall, slim man with a thick mustache and eyebrows. 
possibly. Alpheus had been her companion during the riots in Atlanta and their mother's adventures in Germany. Like Eunice, in adulthood, Alpheus is committed to the project of racial uplift. Not only African-American people, but all people of color and fighting for working class rights, fighting for unions, fighting for national liberation against colonialism. Also like his sister, he works with some major leading figures like Paul Robeson and W.E.B. Du Bois. But unlike Eunice, who remains in the Republican Party her entire life, Alpheus takes a sharp political left turn. Alpheus was a communist, like a real communist. The same year that the trial of the century unfolds, Alpheus makes a career choice of a very different kind. In 1936, Alpheus officially joined the Communist Party. He was active with a lot of left-wing organizations. He was a supporter of Mao and Stalin. He was, you know, the real deal. I think that was the beginning of the troubles for Alpheus. It's fascinating to think of Alpheus finding his way to communism. My siblings and I are all very different from each other, but my older sister, the firstborn, is the golden child of the family. She always does the right thing and is the kind of person who waves at strangers like they're best friends. She also keeps the peace. My mother says I'm her rebel, but I tend to set up tougher boundaries than my sister and my brother. Plus, I'm the middle child. It's my birthright to cause a little havoc. Alpheus is the baby brother, the only boy. I wonder if part of the reason these two siblings are so different is so that they can stand out from each other. Like, Eunice studies at Smith, a predominantly white private women's college with her fees paid for by a wealthy friend of their mother. Alpheus, on the other hand, works as a railway porter at a train station through his college years at Howard University, a historically Black school. I'm not saying he became a communist because he was frustrated that his sister's college was paid for and his wasn't. But he would have been hanging out with Pullman porters and getting exposed to the labor movement. They did have very different experiences. In 1941, as Eunice is playing the perfect respectable Republican, the FBI is creating a file on her younger brother. One day in May, Alpheus is reading a newspaper when he comes across his own name. It's in an article which states that the House of Un-American Activities Committee created to examine any behavior considered to be a threat to the public, like communist thought, has branded him a communist. He actually read in the newspaper the charges against him before he was informed by the committee that he was even being charged. He writes to the committee demanding the right to testify. But it's not until the following year that he receives a letter from the FBI exonerating him of all charges. But as the years progress, his file grows thicker. Notes, reports, associations, presumably. Alpheus saw in socialism and communism the path for African-American equality and Black liberation. I think Eunice saw a different path. As their paths diverge, Eunice and Alpheus clash publicly with each other. Not directly, but they were ideologically opposed on a lot of things. For example, when Thomas Dewey was running for president, Alpheus was calling him a reactionary in the press, which I'm sure she didn't like very much. By the early 1950s, Eunice has given up active law and is working with a few prominent Black women's associations on their domestic and international efforts. She was at the founding of the United Nations, I think on behalf of the National Council of Negro Women. After World War II, there was a lot going on. One of those things is the UN Convention on Genocide. Post-war, the convention aims to define genocide so it can be considered an international crime. And in the early 50s, there was a movement to get the United States to ratify the convention. Eunice wants to get the U.S. on board. And for a while, it's a family affair, because so does Alpheus. Eunice testified before the Senate in favor of ratification. She was actually the only Black person to testify for it. But there are significant levels of pushback against the idea of ratification in America. 
one in particular becomes a sticking point. One of the arguments against the U.S.'s ratification of the convention was that the U.S. itself was in violation of the convention. The number one concern was because of the prevalence of lynching and overall because of the treatment of Black Americans. I can imagine Eunice going to the podium, wearing one of her white lace collars. It's the 1950s, so her hat and gloves probably would have been on point. She's standing in front of a panel of senators, a room full of people behind her. She speaks some of the few words we have of hers that have lasted through the years, to be brushed off and examined again in the harsh light of present day. The situation of the Negro people in this country is in no way involved. The lynching of an individual, or of several individuals, has no relation to the extinction of masses of people because of race, religion, or political belief. Over 70% of people lynched in America were Black. That's at least 3,446 Black Americans up until 1968 that we know of. Lynching was often a form of vigilante justice, with white people hanging and mutilating Black people accused of any number of crimes from loitering, to making eye contact, to sexual assault without any formal charges, a way of eradicating Black life based on race. It was absolutely a form of genocide. So we don't know whether Eunice really believed this or not, but I think she felt we want to get it ratified, we need to convince people that it's not going to cause problems for the U.S., and so this is what I'm going to say. It's hard to remember our icons could have been as flawed as the rest of us especially when you have to follow certain cultural mores. Don't speak ill of the dead. Don't disrespect your elders. Don't share family business with outsiders. We see it when it comes to looking beyond Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy, to see him as a human being who may have made mistakes in his marriage. He became a martyr of the civil rights movement, and to speak beyond his accomplishments is to be disrespectful. It's disappointing that Eunice would argue that lynching should not be a part of this basic human rights consideration. But if that is how Eunice feels, her brother Alpheus does not agree. Alpheus was not willing to make that concession. An organization that he worked with called the Civil Rights Congress drafted a document called We Charge Genocide, which was submitted to the UN, essentially saying, yes, the situation in the US is exactly the type of thing that the Genocide Convention speaks to. And Alpheus was involved in drafting it and was also a signatory to the document. I wonder if Eunice was angry with her brother for being at such cross purposes. It probably caused a lot of tongue wagging for this brother and sister to be so at odds. Did Eunice take Alpheus' stance as a personal attack against her? I don't think he was doing it personally. It wasn't about her. But I think Eunice probably, both in that situation and in the Thomas Dewey situation, felt very undermined by him. She probably felt frustrated that he was taking public positions. She probably took his politics a little personally. I think that she took the wrong stance. I think because of her background in law enforcement. She knew it was the wrong stance. I think that it was either incredibly naive or disingenuous for her to blame her brother for the limitations that were placed on her in a Jim Crow, racist, sexist society. It's a rift they never come to rectify. In the year that followed Eunice testifying, in 1951, Alfea stood before the House of Un-American Activities Committee this time in person. He refuses to give up the names of those who'd contributed to a civil rights fund which had come under the scrutiny of the committee. And because Alpheus took the principled stand that he would not divulge their names, he was sentenced to six months in prison. He had a vision of what he thought was best for the world. And he was willing to sacrifice a lot personally for it. 
After that prison stint was over, Alfeas finds it difficult to get a foot back on the ladder of politics in America. A lot of the organizations that he had worked with sort of fell apart. He basically couldn't find work in the U.S., and he ended up spending most of the rest of his life in Africa. For the rest of her life, Eunice will blame her failure to receive a judgeship on Alpheus's communist misadventures. Maybe it was easier to point the finger at someone she felt had betrayed her than to confront the fact that Dewey, someone she'd been loyal to, had let her down. Maybe it was easier to blame her brother, a black man, than it was to point the finger at Dewey, a white man with power. Whatever the reason, as Eunice aged, she'd broken off her relationships with her brother, was living in a rocky marriage, had strained her relationship with her son, and had lost her only friend. When people looked at Eunice as she moved into later life, what did they see? In history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When I was growing up, the image I had was more of just a stern-faced woman with, like, a fur coat. I think I had this idea that she wore a fur coat. Is that from like some pictures that you saw? No, I think it came from just the way my dad talked about her. Leah Carter is the great-granddaughter of Eunice Hunton Carter. Leah's voice has been featured throughout the series. Her contributions have been some of the only direct contact I found with Eunice when searching for a sense of who she was above and beyond her historical record. As well as being Eunice's great-granddaughter, Leah has spent time carrying out meticulous research for her father's book. Her father is Stephen L. Carter, a lawyer, professor, and author, and Eunice Carter's grandson. 
She was apparently always very glamorously dressed and put together. Before Leah spent her days going through archives, letters, journals, there were the bright yet hazy details passed down to her from the childhood memories of her own father. I knew a few things that my dad had told stories about her just as his grandmother. I can't remember if he said that she wore fur coats or I just ad-libbed that in my mind. (laughs) But that was sort of my childhood image of her. Leah's father remembers Eunice as a stern grandmother and an imposing presence. The grandchildren were all a little scared of her. She would correct his grammar. And he always said she was the type of person who would correct the way that they were using their silverware at dinner. That makes sense to me. Eunice in her life always had to be pristine. She was detail-oriented, and she was often in the kinds of spaces that were full of white people who probably looked for the slightest flaw in how she carried herself or communicated. She probably tried to train her grandchildren for the harsh world she'd experienced. She traveled a lot in her later life, went on a lot of cruises, and I don't know if that sort of added to their image of her as like kind of an imposing faraway figure. What stands out to me is how Eunice's accomplishments always seem to keep her on the edges of time, from the Luciano trial to her own family lore. When I was younger, she was just this figurehead of, here's the type of thing you're supposed to be achieving. Not that anyone ever told me that, but you too should be as accomplished as Eunice, but just I think that's probably what I would have felt. Like her father, and her father's father, and Eunice herself, Leah became a lawyer. But it was only when researching her great-grandmother that Leah discovered the earlier parts of Eunice's professional life, including one aspect that overlapped with a writer who reminds me of Eunice in many ways. I thought about this way back in episode two. I didn't know that she had been a writer. One of my favorite facts was she was inducted into the Harlem Writers Guild along with Zora Neale Hurston, which was so amazing to me. (laughs) I was like, oh my gosh, that's my great-grandma. Thank God, Zora Neale Hurston. I was really overwhelmed by that. Eunice achieved a lot of recognition in her own time, especially in the Black press. It's no exaggeration to say she was famous all over America. But her current day legacy seems to be fading in real time. That's a big part of why I decided to do this podcast. I could go on about this for a while, (laughs) about the way that we talk about or don't talk about Black history in this country, the way that we treat Black history as separate from history. I certainly felt, especially when I was very young, what we were taught about Black people was that nobody had really done anything until quite recently that there was slavery and then everyone was a sharecropper for a while and then the civil rights movement happened and now everything's great. And I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about slavery or sharecropping. Obviously, those things are really important. But there are so many things that Black people have done that have been forgotten or kind of just buried. And that is very frustrating. Eunice Hunton Carter is responsible for the most sensational trial in the history of American organized crime. Why does her legacy only seem to survive in the realm of hazy childhood memories of a stern older woman in a fur coat correcting grammar? She was a legend in the making long before the Lucky Luciano trial. Obviously, she intimidated her grandkids, but I think she intimidated a lot of people in real life. She was just kind of a fierce person. It's hard to know what kept Eunice from her judgeship or why someone with such an outstanding work ethic and influential connections did not go further in her career. Is it just enough to point the finger at racism and misogyny? Was she too dedicated to her ambitions? Her years as a Harlem socialite proved she knew how to let her hair down and shake a tail feather. What exactly was the secret password that would have opened up her career and made her a household name. I wish I had that time machine so I could go back and ask Thomas E. Dewey, look here, fella, what gives? He'd probably have me sent away and lobotomized, but I'd still try to fight for my girl Eunice. Would she have fought for me? 
I can relate in many ways to Eunice. The pressure of navigating predominantly white spaces while they constantly question your right to be there. Having a strong idea of how you see your career going and trying to be a team player while others take credit for your work. I know what it's like to be too direct with firm boundaries or to be called unlikable as shorthand for she won't let me bully her. I even know what it means to stay in an unhappy relationship for security and status. But I've never been good at brown-nosing or staying loyal to someone who doesn't seem to support my growth. I also wouldn't sacrifice my community for the sake of a greater good that doesn't take my people into consideration. If Eunice and I met today, she'd probably be aghast at the lack of structure in my working life, but maybe she'd secretly admire the freedom of my dating life. I'd let her read my memoir and poetry. I think she'd be proud to see me making a living out of my creativity and disappointed that the only dining silverware etiquette I know is outside in. In looking for Eunice's story, I am reminded of all the other Black women in America who have had their stories buried or forgotten. If you do something valuable with your life, it's still valuable even if people don't remember it. The influence that you have while you're alive matters, even if after you're gone, everyone forgets about you. Even though that's frustrating. (laughs) But I think it doesn't mean that it was all for nothing. Legacy is important to me. I understand Eunice's desire to leave her mark on history. Time has worn it down, but if you know where to look, you can still make it out. I have a fear of being forgotten, that my life, my art, my work will disappear, and I don't even have a fourth of Eunice's accomplishments. But as I've learned about Eunice Hunton Carter, I know that someone, somewhere down the line, will find a faint marking of me. And even if it's only one person who tries to track down the history of me, that will be enough. As a child-free woman, I don't have children who will bless me with grandkids and great-grandkids who might one day research and write a book about me. Fortunately, Eunice Hunton Carter does. And now we can see that she was a complicated, fascinating, perhaps unlikable, definitely beloved, and smart woman whose tenacity took down New York's most notorious gangster amid the racism and sexism of 1930s America and who fought just as fiercely for herself. And one of those great-grandchildren has some advice for you. find these stories, dig them up if they've been buried. You've been listening to The Godmother. My name's Leah Carter. I am Eunice Carter's great-granddaughter. My dad, Stephen Carter, wrote the book Invisible, the forgotten story of the black woman lawyer who took down America's most famous mobster, and I did a lot of the research for that book. I'm Marilyn Greenwald. I'm a professor emerita of journalism at Ohio University, and I'm the author of five biographies, including one of Eunice Hunton Carter. My name is Robert Whalen, and I'm an emeritus professor of history at Queen's University of Charlotte here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hi, my name is Ellen Paulson. I research and I write books about women who were involved with notorious gangsters and desperados. I am Claire White, and I am the director of education at the Mob Museum in downtown Las Vegas. My name is Brandon Buskey, and I am the director of the Criminal Law Reform Project at the ACLU. My name is Tony Pesanovsky, and I am a independent historian and author. Aside from Dorothy Hunton's uh, biography of her husband, Alphaeus, 
my book is the only standalone biography of Alpheus Hunton. The Godmother is produced by Novel for iHeartRadio. For more from Novel, visit novel.audio. The Godmother is hosted and written by me, Nicole Perkins. Our producer is Leona Hamid. Additional production from Adjua Jima Brimpong, Ronald Young Jr., and Zayana Youssef. Our editor is Adjua Jima Brimpong. Additional story editing from Max O'Brien and Mithali Rao. And our researcher is Zayana Youssef. Additional research from Mohammed Ahmed. David Waters is our executive producer. Field production by Tanita Romani and Palace Shaw. Sound design, mixing, and scoring by Daniel Kempson. Our score was written, performed, and recorded by Jeff Parker. Music supervision by Nicholas Alexander and David Waters. Production management and endless patience from Cherie Houston, Sarah Tobin, and Charlotte Wolf. Fact-checking by Findel Fulton and Danya Suleiman. Story development by Madeline Parr, Jess Swinburne, and Zayana Youssef. Willard Foxton is our creative director of development. Special thanks to Leah Carter, Stephen Carter, Angela J. Davis, Andrew Fernley, Marilyn Greenwald, Sandra Lebedee, Catherine Godfrey, Nadia Mady, Amalia Sortland, Sean Glenn, Neil Krishnan, Julia Bromberg, Katrina Norvell, Carly Frankel, and all the team at WME. Novel. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts, the medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.